Thanks for tuning into the season two premiere of Character Build, folks. A list of topics and themes discussed in this episode, as well as a content warning, can be found in the episode description, where you can also find a glossary of terms that we use throughout the episode that you may not know the definition of. Please enjoy the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Character Build. I'm so excited to be talking to our guest today. We have theater and podcast artist Adam Kutaishat today. Adam, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Happy to be uh, here. I'm so I'm thrilled to be here. This is great. Adam is a theater artist, uh, podcast artist, writer. Uh, I'm familiar with a lot of your work. We worked together exactly once pre-pandemic, but uh, it's not it's not hard to find your work. If I'm being honest, yeah, I I'm, I get around um, lots of <laughs> lots of lots of theatrical work, especially in the Midwest um, and sort of throughout the country. Um, I'm the associate artistic director of Music Theater Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I work for several other theater companies, and then I'm a actor, writer, composer, um, director, music director. I do. I, I wear many hats, hats on hats, which is you know usually not a good thing. And yeah, we'll see if uh, it's a good thing for me. Sure. <laughs> and so far, it seems to be working. Uh, I'd love to see your coat rack with all the hats on it. It's it's be... it's enormous, and there's there's a lot of framing. It's structural. Yeah. yeah. Oh it's sure. A, oh, you're one of those do. one of those yeah, yeah. structured hats, not hanging <laughs> hats. I get it. Well, hey, this is so exciting. This is kind of a two pronged thing. You know, usually we deep dive right into TTRPGs, but we have a whole other thing to talk about today. Uh, so I guess let's just start. I'd love to just grill you a little bit about your origins, whatever you're comfortable sharing in terms of like when performance came into your life. When did gaming come into your life? When did they intersect, if at all, before adulthood? Sure. So um, I, I the the genesis of, of me as a performer is sort of two prong. First was I've sort of always been in music. Um I was, uh, I started playing the viola when I was three years old. Um, my mother was very insistent. My mother's a cellist. Um, and she was really passionate about making sure that my sister and I had um, music in our lives from a very early age, which was wonderful. So I really, I really enjoyed that part of my life and performing musically. And I, I did that all through and I got really involved with the music programs in, in elementary school, middle school and all that. And then I got to high school and uh, the genesis for my introduction into the theater arts uh, was racism because um, I, I tell the story a lot, but I was, I was walking through the halls one day and a bunch of my music friends accosted me in the halls and they were like, Hey, you need to come be in the musical. We need more Brown people for West side story. Uh, uh, disclaimer. I'm not Latino. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I was like, uh, they did not tell me what brown people they needed. They just said it was me and my my, my Indian friend Manish. And uh, so they just went, we need more brown people. And I was like, is it a big time commitment? And they said, no, like liars. And uh, so I, I went and auditioned and like immediately in the audition sort of like fell in love with it and ended up being the ironically one of the lighter skinned sharks because they made all the white kids go out and dye their hair black and uh and spray tan so they were like these deep uh, uncomfortable shade of orange 
and uh, and Venetia and I were the, the fairest skinned of the. It was wild. It was super racist, but wow. uh, it did get me really. And for the record, I went to I went to high school in the early aughts, so like this was not uncommon. It's still sadly not super uncommon, but like the awareness of this being <laughs> yeah. deeply wrong, uh, and the and the shame of it wasn't there yet. Like looking sure. back. Uh, I should Quite not have overt. done that. Yeah. They should not have, like, none of none of that should have happened. But that was sort of the genesis of my theater career was just a, a heaping spoon of racism on a whole bunch of fronts. <laughs> and uh, here we here we are uh, years later. Um, and then I played tabletop growing up, like with my family a little bit um, and never really got into it. And we can talk about why. As we as we really dig in, but I, I never really got into it. Um, and then as I was getting older and I was doing theater things, a lot of folks were talking about it. I started listening to some actual play podcasts and and getting invested in it. But it was I, I wasn't ready to like dip my toes in yet. And then eventually I started playing some games with, you know, close friends, theater friends and that. And then um, actually uh, so I, I had been playing for years, um, DMing for years and then like the big genesis then of, of, of me being like a tabletop, like being known as a tabletop per person happened during quarantine where like I was playing a game a day. Like it was, <laughs> there was too much for a while. Sure. Um, and, but, but it was, you know, I, I became like a really heavy play tester and sort of known in the, in the tabletop play testing community. And uh, we took one of my podcasts that was running at the time on the um, sexy hackers network was called the all Arcadians, which was sort of a D and D um, was like a scripted sitcom, but set in like a D and D world. And uh, we took our primary cast for that. None of whom had played D and D before. And uh, we did an actual play with them playing as their characters, which was very fun. That's something that we did uh, during the pandemic. We called it the LRK D and Dians because I like puns. And um, so that that's sort of where it has intersected is um, most of the most of the tabletop stuff I've done, mostly because of the circles that I run in has been with theater folks. Um, But also during quarantine, I was doing it with folks that weren't theater folks. I was, I was doing it with anybody who would have me in, yeah. a, in a really, really, really cool way. And then I will also say um, there's one like pinnacle to my tabletop and theater careers coming together. And that was, I played a, a wonderful game called Alice is Missing uh, during, during the pandemic. And I had uh pandemic still happening during the quarantine. Right. Um, yes. And I had, uh, had such an emotional experience during that. I, I had such a deeply intimate experience with that. And one of the things that I was asked during the pandemic was what makes theater different than any other form of entertainment? And my hypothesis is the intimacy of being in a shared space. That when you share a space with the artists, it's different, right? So that was, that's what makes film and television different. That's what makes, you know, each each thing has a unique piece. And like, if you say theatrical art is the art of acting and sharing a space intimately, then, or, or presenting things in, in an acting sense or, or taking on characters or whatever it may be and, and sharing a space intimately, that that is what makes theater unique from other forms of entertainment. Um, yeah. And that was the thing that was missing in the pandemic was we could not do that. So we were really not creating theater in the sense that we know it. 
And my question was, how do we, as a theater group, innovate to make that possible in a world where we cannot do it? And so I took my Alice's Missing experience, which felt deeply intimate and very much like I shared a space with the other performers. And I turned it into a play. Um, I wrote a full length play called Absent, which is available for production, in which four actors play a group. So it's based, it's built on a very similar premise. A girl goes missing in a small Gothic town and her family and friends come together to find out what happened to her in a group chat. And in this particular story, like it, it veers sharply off of Alice is Missing right after yeah. the premise. But sure. um, because I started writing, I was like, I can't write Alice is Missing because I have other ideas. But um, sure. <laughs> it, uh, it, it all takes place in a group chat and the audience is invited into the group chat. They're not invited to like participate in the group chat, but they're invited into the group chat. And um, there's like artifacts presented. So like you, you like throughout the group chat that, you know, PDFs that you can read of like news articles and things like that. So very immersive. It's very meant to be very, very intimate. And, and it's meant to create a shared digital space. Um, and we, we did a, we did a workshop of it and it was pretty successful. People seemed to like it. We got a lot of feedback. Um, I did another uh, round of edits, a final round of edits that was dramaturged by Heidi Armbruster, um, who's a brilliant playwright and performer, New York, Wisconsin, sort of hybrid human being, wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, the final draft is done and waiting for production. So that is the, th- that was, that was my contribution to, to theater during, um, during the quarantine period of the pandemic. What a fabulous output. First of all, I'm right there with you. I didn't even start playing TTRPGs until the quarantine part of the pandemic. Uh, and now I'm realizing for some of the same reasons as someone who was like in the middle of exiting theater at that time. Uh, and as someone who has Alice is Missing on their shelves, because I bought it last time I was in Denver with the interest of playing it, I believe you can only play it once, right? It's kind of that kind of game. You can you can play it multiple times because the, the storyline will change throughout. Oh, um, it is, yeah. So the way that Alice is Missing is structured without going into too many spoilers is essentially at intervals in time. Like it's played over a 90 minute period. And that 90 minute period comes with a brilliant score that sets the mood beautifully and a timer. And at certain intervals of the timers, players are asked to pull cards. And that card gives you instructions on how to advance the story, which is such a great, I mean, I know it's not the only game to do this, but like what a clever, you know, it's, it's like long form improv but in a way that is very structured towards like a theater literary scope, right? That this idea of like, okay, here's, here's the next structural beat of the story. Yeah. Get there however you'd wish. Really, really, Gosh. really, really elegant design to it. Um, so the, the story will change. And like what happens to Alice changes depending on how that, that gets navigated. So it's definitely replayable. And it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Golly, well, now that I know that, I'll be less precious with my what I thought was my only play, and I'll certainly try to get some friends to play it very soon. Jumping off from there, you know, I kind of warned you what the prompt was ahead of time, and we've already gotten into it of like, you know, what humanity do we put into the characters that we create and stories we tell at the table, whether it's accidental or intentional, and then what do we get out of that? So the fact that we've already discovered or that you've just revealed that this thing you so fervently got out of that experience, that's very cool. I, I think, 
Yeah. I mean, just to, just to dive right in, I think it yeah. sort of depends on how you play tabletop games. Um, in, in my circles, we have um, probably a little bit uh, not okay uh, nicknames for the, the different styles of playing. Uh, we call it straight and queer so that like people who play straight D&D are the ones who really care about the rules. <laughs> they, it's mostly combat, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's just, it's just to look cool. It's obviously that's not just straight people and they're queer people do that. Right. But like, that's how we think about it because like yeah. when I've played games with straight communities, that tends to be like the focus of the gameplay. And when I tend to play with queer communities, it's about the role playing. Right. So to yeah. me, it's like, there's, there's two pieces, right? There's the TTG tabletop game and then the RPG role-playing yeah. game. Right. And so like, when you think about TTG, right? Tabletop games, you're thinking about things like Warhammer. You're thinking about, you know, games that have structure and rules and you're navigating strategy, you're navigating character building, you're navigating all of these things. Role-playing games, right? Are, are things that are a little bit more freeform, like long-form improv is essentially, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's more of the actor, the character creation, the world building, the artistry. And I think there are different focuses for different people, but really like what we're, what we're talking about is the RPG aspect of it, the queer theater aspect of it, or the, you know? And, and so for me, that's where we get into the exploration. Like that's where people use tabletop as a, a vehicle for exploration of humanity and, and, and its relationship to the world. Um, and for, for me, I think that's just a really beautiful it's a really beautiful place to explore um, because the way that tabletop has sort of grown, it, it's created a built-in set of, if, you're, if you surround yourself with the right people and you have the right conversations, there's a, there's a built-in safety to it because there is distance from oneself. That you that you as you as you put these things on a character, you get to explore, you get to experiment, you get to do all these things, and then you can take off that costume at the end of the session, and you can take pieces with you, which is what I think is really beautiful. Um, you know, as I was I, as I started to explore my gender way too late in life to really be exploring gender in the way that uh, we understand it in today's society, right? We understand that, like, yeah, if you're older than thirty, you're you get two genders, right? And that's not not it, but like generationally there's this understanding that like only the kids do the non-binary thing and it's like no there's many of us over the age of 30 are probably non-binary and ha haven't had the moratorium period to really explore that and so I played a changeling character in D&D &D and was like how do how do I you know and it was really it was like a toe in the water moment of like I'm just gonna do this and I'm gonna see what it feels like and how people react to it and um and it was, a, it, you know, it the having a character be referred to with they, them pronouns and have people referring to somebody I am portraying having they, them pronouns was a really crystallizing moment for me in my lifetime. Um, and there's just a, there's a lot of opportunity for that. And it opens up the opportunity for conversation um, in a world where identity is so precious that one's identity defines so much of how you move through the world to be able to explore identity, creating identity, removing identity, um, identity is such a, such a beautiful, beautiful thing, a gift to, to have available to you, to be able to explore these things. And there's, 
I firmly believe that there's there's role playing for everyone who is interested in it. Um, and and there are so many things that we can do with with tabletop. If I had, I was telling someone the other day, if I had my druthers, is that word racist? I don't know. We'll look it up later. You can cut it. Um, I'm going to look it up and we'll, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If I had my, my, uh, my, my way, I would, um, I, I, I would have every collegiate theater course and potentially every collegiate, collegiate course and maybe high school course have some sort of role-playing element, right? Some sort of, this is what it's like to build a character and explore it because it is such a, the gamification right gives people gives people the bumpers on the on the bowling alley to sort of steer when you know you tell people to create a character they go ah uh, <laughs> there's so many options there's too many options right if you go okay here are your classes here are your things here are your this here are your that and there's tabletop games for every situation that's the thing that i think a lot of people really don't always grasp is you know there's there's over islands and inspirals which is you know the magical system is using asl and bsl right and you, so you're learning sign language as you're working through these games right or you know there are games that are that are you know set in modern set and there's monster of the week which is that you know buffy style that, and there's but there's so many systems there's so many games there's a, there's a tabletop setting for everything right and then there's also tabletop games where you get to explore characters together there's a really beautiful game that i play tested that'll be coming out and i, I strongly suggest people to take a look into it because it's a beautiful game um it's called divination it's it. I don't know when it's coming out, um, but the playtest it's in beta and people can check it out. But it's based on the tarot, and um, so like all the random number generation is based on the tarot, but also the character creation is based on the tarot, right? So so we're learning about that side of things. But the really cool thing about it, and the really challenging thing about it, is the four players playing in any particular game are all playing different aspects of the same character, which is not unique, right? That sure. That's that's a new and like it's it's been around for a long time in tabletop, but it's also you know pushing towards um, that's that's becoming pretty prevalent. People want to build community and understand character together and and society together. But it also leads to some really interesting identity questions. And and I've had some heated and productive and like really respectful conversations around this idea of shared identity when you don't share identity. And uh, but it's a really cool game because you get to design. I, I played uh, I played the hanged one, um, which was a character I was not expecting to really um, enjoy. And what what's great about it, sort of getting to this idea of like having the bumpers, um, you know, they they have all these skills and things. And and I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to min max this build for funsies. So I just created this like very specific character with the skills that were available. And it led me to so many interesting choices that really sort of broke the the, the GM system um, to the point where he would frequently like come, come back to me and be like, every time I have a plan for the session, you completely do something different in the best way. And so now I'm just like guessing to see what, how you're, I'm, I have like bets on where you're gonna break the game. And, but like that, and part of it is that's the point of a play test, but also it was, it was so much fun to do things that were wildly different than anything that I would do, play a character that's completely different for yourself in the same way that you do in theater. Like sometimes the most exciting and interesting characters are the ones that are the most different from you. And so you get to create these things. And, and the other thing, I, I know this is a really long answer, but I think 
it's the aspect of doing it in community. Divination is a great example of that. But and this is this is a this is sort of a, a my soapbox for role playing games is as you're building these characters, it's your responsibility if it's not a one person game to build these characters in relationship to the world that the 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 GM or DM or whomever has created, and in relationship to the other characters. Yeah. And those people that like the people that frustrate me the most when I play are the people that refuse to adapt their characters, right? That it's like, well, my character did this. I wrote, I wrote 40 pages of backstory. I'm like, wonderful. You wrote a book. You're not playing that book. You're playing a character and characters change and they grow and they adapt to the scenarios that they are in. And when you dig your feet into the ground and everyone has to drag you from plot point to plot point, it becomes very frustrating for the people that you're playing with. Absolutely. And it's not a real representation of how relationship works in the world. Yes, there, there are people who stand firm on things and there is conflict and there is, you know, there is relationship and you have to write that relationship and whatever that may be. There are hurt feelings. There are all of those things. And that's fine. That's great. But for me, one of the great joys is taking a character that I've built and then understanding the world, right? I play a lot of sort of homebrewed or new games or whatever, where the, where the, where the, you know, the designer of the world comes in and gives it to us sort of while we're creating the character and it's, or in the first, you know, 20 minutes of the game. And you're like, oh, none of this makes sense with my character, but I'm going to justify these things in this way and I'm going to tweak these things and I'm going to, you know, adjust. And, and how does that relate to the party? How does, what do we need to tell a cohesive story? Because I don't think of tabletop role-playing games necessarily. I think the game system is a structure through which we tell stories, community collaborative stories. And, and I I think that, that, that the game structure can get away if we adhere too much to it. But also we have to start telling the same story. We can't all be, you know, dogs pulling in different directions or the sled's not going anywhere. And like that happens to so many D&D games. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then the DM's just like, okay, here's the railroad tracks. Let's go. Right. And yes. And it, and then, you know, it, it's not as fun as when I, I remember a D&D game I was playing where I created this very serious character, very serious character. And I noticed right away in the party that almost everyone else was serious. Like so many tragic Batman backstories. Ooh, and so much brood. Like, there's so much brooding. And I like within 30 seconds of the start of the game pivoted to playing a comedic character. And like this character, I just started like, just started like anything that happened to me. Cause it was a character that was very much based on RNG. And our DM would like give me weird things that would happen to me if I like had the wrong like chance happen. And I started, they, they became weird, but my character just sort of became like oddly fascinated with them. And so I like ended up getting this like Daenerys Targaryen laundry list of like things that happened to me, but I read them off like titles every time I introduced hey. myself. <laughs> I got progressively longer as the story went on. And it was very fun. I, 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 it was very funny. I, I, so the character started as like Zeriel, this like, this like Avenger, this like fortune tell like this whole thing and it ended up being it like his his main title was Z- Zeriel the crab handed and he did not have crab hands wow that- <laughs> so he had for, he had some for a while but he decided just like that was his identifying feature was he was crab handed even though he didn't have crab hands anymore oh, and um man. also i think they were lobster hands to begin with so like it was it was just but it, and, and the it, nuance it was, 
it was not the character that I wanted to play necessarily when I walked into it, but it was absolutely the, the character that the story needed, that the party needed, the community needed, and it became a great joy to play this character. Um, it was so much fun. And like when you create this character, right, you're processing something. And I think about this all the time, that one of the things that is important to remember is when we're doing all this character work, there's the conscious level of what we're processing and working through and doing all this stuff. There's also the subconscious things that we don't know that we're processing or that we don't know we're needing to process. It's, it's why I love things like any form of divination, right? Like you're you're exploring what your subconscious thinks of things. That's ultimately what we're doing, right? When we're reading the tarot, when we're, when we're doing any of these other things, runes and, and all of those things, we're looking at something, we're getting a visual prompt or an audio prompt or, or whatever it may be. And we're asking what our brain wants to or does not want to happen. And we're exploring that. And that's what these characters allow us to do, right? They allow us a lens with which to process our subconscious. And if we stick to the conscious side of it, this is my character, this is what they would do in this situation. This is, and we never let our subconscious, we never let that improvisatory element take us away somewhere where we never expected, then we're not really expressing ourselves. And like, that's, you know, from a mental health perspective, right? Like, that's a red flag. That's, a, yeah, no, that's a red flag. And unfortunately, people do operate that way in their real lives in public. And, in terms of operating that way, uh, it's first of all, gosh, there's that was there's, there's so much truth to what to, to, to the, the practical lecture you've given. I have to be honest, you, yeah, it was head you are, no, you are uh, without <laughs> knowing it, kind of amalgamating everything that we touched on in the first season and really bringing us to like the recap episode, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And well, the recap, in addition to like bringing us to the 201 level of like now that we all know these things, we can really explore them. When it comes to like the party balance thing, it's interesting that you mention like the pivot. What an interesting idea of having to, because the, you know, tr the traditional idea of like balancing a party is like, oh, we have our rogue, we have our barbarian, we have our spellcaster. I guess I'll be the cleric. We need a healer. But instead, that's more of an emotional pivot to emotionally balance. Like we said, the, uh, the TTG versus the RPG of it. So that's Yeah, it's interesting. So fun fact, barbarian's a racist term. Uh... Good to know. Yeah. Great to know. We're all learning right now. Yeah. Uh, Berserker, uh, not racist, and uh, fills the same niche. Uh, and so, sounds badass. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a term. It's a colonial term for the Berber people of Northern Africa. Anyways. Um, yeah. No, thank you for that. Totally. Um, interestingly but, enough, like the idea of, of that externalness of it without really going to the subconscious level. I did something in a home game recently that I think fits that. And it also kind of fits the melding of, of systems here too, is it's a D and D five E homebrew. Everyone came in with their own character and I was like, cool, we're going to do a session by session thing. So people can leave and come and go as they please. But I wanted there to be an extra element of the characters being familiar with each other. Mm -hmm. So I brought in the, the gamified mechanic and collaborative storytelling tool that the kids on bikes and kids on broom series yes. uses, yeah. where you can choose that you either know somebody in a negative light, know someone in a positive light, or you don't know them. And either way, you roll the dice and you each answer a question about each other. And it brought such a level of, of, like, of understanding and of, it just, it just elevated the role-playing aspect of it uh, to 11. Like that, that, that was the warm-up, and we immediately were able to jump in on such an interesting nuanced story. It's interesting that you say that. I, one of the things that I've been noticing a lot lately is that these games can be really, really successful if you spend the time 
uh, prepping them with other game tactics, right? So that that tactic is is brilliant. It's really smart. Um, another one that I've seen, like Divination uses a collaborative character building model. So you all watch each other build each other's characters. And there is a similar mechanic where like, how do we, how do you feel about each other? There's, there's prompts and questions and things, but there's a, you know, th- things like, uh, what is it? A quiet year? Is that? That sounds right. Yeah. Um, where like you build the 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 history of the world together right um it's a collaborative sort of like a long form game it's gamified so like there's a deck of cards it's it's really interesting they just used it on um the adventure zone the most recent season or uh, two seasons ago they they used that to build out the world so that there's like a shared understanding and you know like oftentimes you know you as the game manager you're like okay here's the here's the book that tells you everything. And I once had a player who refused to read it because he knew his character knew nothing about the world. And he was constantly surprised in a really delightful way as a player of like, oh, that's what happens in this world? And I'm like, yeah, oh, that's what that's happens in the world. So cool. But it also, you know, led to tensions where it was like, he was going off of the D&D book and I had changed the world completely. And so he would say things in character and based on the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'd be like, well, that's not necessarily true in this world, but... I operate very much on a, I, I, I have some improv training. I'm not really an, like, I don't live in that um, improv world where I'm doing shows and doing all that stuff, but sure. you know, I've trained in improv. I, I appreciate the art form of improv. I can jump on stage and do a, do a show if you need me to do it. Right. And, um, I, that is not an invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Only a don't, don't call me. Um, <laughs> but, but that, that, that the yes and aspect of it, like I, as, as a, as a game manager, I sort of refuse to say no to my character and my players, you know, when they're talking about the lore of the world, when they're building story with me, I refuse to say no, which means that I, I'm then going to justify what they just said in the world that I built, right? I'm going to pivot. I'm going to adapt. And it led to so many really, really fun things. And that's, that's sort of what I'm, the, the other thing is like, one of the things that I took away from improv that I, I, I would love for more players and, and game managers to really start to understand is the idea of gift giving is that when somebody tells you something that is true about you and you take that and you work with it, right? There are obviously limits, right? It's not an improv show where you're trying to trip someone else up, right? That's not necessarily what that, that point, that point is not what gift giving and improv is for, but sometimes it happens where improvisers are just like, yeah, and sing that song now, right? And that song that you know and love, and then it's like, ha ha ha, this person didn't want to sing this song and now they're singing, right? You know, there's that piece of it. That's not what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about is the idea of making someone or, or giving someone the opportunity to pivot and to change and to learn something about their character um, through the this collective storytelling. And it's it's a really brilliant tactic for me to be able to say to your character, like, hey, that's a nice, that's a nice shield. What does that lion stand for? And you're like, I did not have a lion on my shield when I designed this character. And and then you're like, oh, uh, I got it from, and you start to you start to create a story in your mind, or you say, oh, that's not a that's not a lion, that's a chimera, uh, because, and you start to you know right, but but instead of saying, well, no, that's not true, right? No, this is the world that I built. No, this is not how my character is supposed to be perceived. That you do what you do in the real world, you figure it out, right? When yeah. you're surrounded by people, when you're part of a community, and when you're in a party, right? in this, in, in whatever system you're playing, when you're a team, when you're whatever the language of the game is, yeah. you adapt to the roles, both 
in terms of like, what am I useful for? But also socially, what am I getting from this? What am I taking from this? What am I giving to this? Right. And that changes and it adapts and it evolves. And when we allow ourselves to release that rigidity, that's when I think the really, the really great storytelling happens. And when we can all like collectively understand those relationships, right. And, and create, create those relationships with the characters and let them change. One of my favorite theater games is the, you are my blank. I want you to be my blank, which is the idea that when, when you're thinking about any character, you can say, you are my something. And I want you to be my something, right? We have an established relationship and we have the relationship that I would like us to have. And so does that other person. And those things are often at odds with each other. And that's what storytelling is, right? How both of those people are trying to get from the first blank to the second blank and how they are moving away from each other often while that's happening. And it's one of my favorite theater games, but it's also so useful in a tabletop setting to sort of think about things in that way of that. I think it's so, it's so easy to want everyone else to understand everything about your character. You worked so hard on that, that character sheet. And, you know, I wrote so much backstory. <laughs> I drew, I drew pictures. Everyone needs to know who this character is and, and celebrate me. And one of the things that I learned from doing sketch and improv, I, I read a lot of sketch and, um, one of the great lessons that I was taught right away is that you need to let go of it being good. When you create something, anything, you need to release your expectation of it being good, especially when other people are involved. I'll tell a quick, a quick story if that's okay. I know Please. I've been talking a lot, but um, I wrote a sketch with some friends for, for a, a production called sketch 22 um, uh, that happens in Milwaukee and now in Florida, it's a, it's sort of a guerrilla sketch fest. Um, 22 hours, put together a bunch of sketches. It's wonderful. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I was writing for my first sketch 22. I'd performed in them before, but I'd never written for one. I'd written a bunch of stuff. I'd written with people that had written on sketch 22, but I'd never written a sketch. And um, I was warned right away. Like, you've seen what happens sometimes because it's all all chose, chosen at random. So like sometimes you get really great performers and directors and sometimes you get performers and directors who just don't get what you wrote. And that's totally yeah. part of the process, right? And it's still fun. It's still funny. and was told like right away like you don't know you don't know who you'll get and was writing this sketch and wrote the worst pun imaginable it was like a great british break british baking send up and i was trying to come up with a whisk uh a whisk pun and it was it was terrible it was really really like it was wasn't funny nobody got it it, it may be the worst joke I've ever written. And one of uh, and my, my co-writers who were experienced writers with, on the program were like, we're keeping this. This is punishment <laughs> for making us sit through this. And they wouldn't let me take, me, take, the, take it out of the script. They refused. They absolutely refused. And we ended up writing a pretty nice ske sketch outside of that. But that sure. joke stayed in and it was awful. <laughs> Get to the show. And the actors did not. And the director, like, they, it just wasn't their sketch. Yeah. And it bombed. It bombed hard. And the great thing was that I didn't care. Like in that moment, I was like, we wrote a fun sketch. I released it into the world and write like as a playwright, that's often what we do. Like I, I encourage playwrights as, as I, I dramaturg for, for new works. And one of the things I encourage playwrights is like, once it's out of your hands, like, you know what your perfect version is that will never be on stage. Just like accept that right away. And like the same thing in, in tabletop, you've created your perfect character. That character will never exist in the game you're playing. 
you have to let go of it. As a DM, they will never play your story the way that you want them to play it, right? And and what was really fun about this particular sketch was there was some some laughter at some of the jokes and things. And we got to that whisk pun and it was silent. It was there, no, but nobody, not, no, not only did nobody laugh, nobody breathed. I'm pretty sure hearts didn't beat in that moment. It was so bad, time stopped. And then you heard three people in the back of the room lose it because we laughed so hard at how, like the joke for us in that moment was that it bombed, right? We had that little thing for us. So like, that's, that's my thing is release your expectation of this creation process. Once you've done it, like do all that work, love this character, be proud of this character, and then release it into this world that you're creating or vice versa love this world create this world like enjoy be proud of this world and then release it to your players and but also have that little thing for you that little nugget for you that you can hang on to like that's that's my biggest advice because when when those things and they're not easy to do right i can say them all i want but like sometimes it's hard but like that that's my you know if you can do that that's when you start to have the most fun that's sort of adjacent to the idea of just like letting yourself fail and, and totally because you need to, you have to. And, and I guess that's also, that's, that's an, again, another level of enlightenment in terms of not allowing yourself to view it as failure. If failure is such a horrible thing, it's, it's, it's a process. It doesn't have to be good. It's part of the process. It's inevitable as somebody who is a new writer, who's finally finished their first you know full script you're correct. It's not going to be perfect. And it's never going to be perfect. I just had to release it under the wild, like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you are always the worst writer you're going to be. And like, this, this is me, like professional dramaturg, dramaturg. Now, this is like one of the things, cause like dramaturgs are equal parts, like editors and therapists and for new works <laughs> and dramaturgs. That's what, that what we, that's what we do. And like one of the conversations I, I frequently have with my writers is, you know, going to them and saying like, What's in your head will never be on. You can ask any artist, like, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Like it doesn't come out the way that it lives in your head. That's it's impossible because it lives in your head in a way that defies language. And so it's, it's partially your limited understanding of how language works and partially how language works, the limiting factor of language. Like you're never going to get there and letting go of that. Right. And, and, and there's only so much you can communicate on the page without becoming absolutely pedantic and useless. And, uh, and that's the same thing in the tables out. Like you, there's only so much you can tell your, your, your game manager before they're like, I will not remember any of this in the moment. Right. Yeah. And then, but there's also this piece that's, that it's like your capacity for helping people realize what's in your head will grow as a writer. But the only way for that to happen is for you to realize what does and doesn't work. And it's the same thing, like when I talk about improv or when I talk about practicing or, or really when I talk about like improvising in music, like jazz music, especially your job when you're practicing, your job when you're growing, your job when you're building is figuring out what doesn't work, right? Like, because when you go into a performance of it, when you go into the, the version that counts, the version that matters, which is always the next one, right? That thought is going to come up again. Do I play the C flat in this moment? Why did I choose that? Be natural. What am I doing? Anyways, um, am <laughs> I gonna? I'm gonna, I'm gonna play this. I want to. Am I gonna play this note in this moment? Do I play this pattern? Do I play it for this length? Do I do whatever? If you already tried it, you know if it worked or not, and you can make that. You can make that branching choice, right? The the path in the in the skill tree has 
reinvented itself and gamifying it. And, yeah. uh, and you know which one to choose. Whereas if you haven't tried it before, you're going to pick somewhat randomly. Yes or no. It becomes binary in that moment. And, or maybe, and then it's a disaster. <laughs> and, <laughs> which is my gender. Um, but you get, <laughs> Disaster maybe. Is the disaster maybe the is year. my gender. Yeah. Um, but the, right. But, but if you've practiced or if you've tried it before, right. As, as you're writing, you're like, oh, I'm going to try this stage direction. Well, that didn't work. The next time that stage direction pops in your mind and you go, nope, that ain't the one. And you find something <laughs> else. Right. And so like, that's, that's education. That's growth. That's how it works is we explore and we try things and failure is just our way of understanding what works and what doesn't. So that when the next iteration happens, obviously there are times where you fail so hard, you don't get to try something, <laughs> but like, that's also a big part of life. Also, this is all just like really good information for game managers of like letting your players fail, let them play fail frequently, let them fail often, give them consequences. But then also at a certain point, failure has to have consequences at certain times. Failure has to have consequences that shrink the box in which they can play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's such an interesting thing that sort of, again, getting back to the the sort of uh, the line that we're towing between the gamification of it, the structure of it, and the art of it. The idea of art in failure has always interested me. And what you were saying about kind of just setting it free reminded me of a quote that I've mentioned on the show before that my AP English teacher in high school one time said, where it was like, art becomes art when somebody else interprets it in a way that you never intended. Meaning that it's not the thing that was in your head, but now it is something else to someone else. And you might never be able to comprehend that, but it's it's become bigger than you in a way. Which is, I think that's to me why I always get so frustrated when artists are so intent on their vision. And like, one of my favorite things is when I make some, something and someone goes, oh, did you do this because of this? And I go, no, that was an accident. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember, and, and like, I, and I firmly believe that if, if you put enough craft into your work, and I don't mean craft as in skill, I mean, as in sort of just like, I cared about this enough to do it, that those things will, those serendipitous things will start to happen. I remember I was writing a, a, a podcast audio fiction series called SWH, which was a spy send up. I write a lot of pastiches and um, <laughs> that's what audio fiction is predominantly doing. And um, so I, I was writing this show and I just remembered that like, I came up with this system of naming all the characters that they all had double letters in their code names. Right. So it's like S double H B O double S, right. Like B double O M like, and all of the characters had a different double letter combination. So all of the characters that worked in this bond desk spy agency had a different double letter. Right. So there are only 26 people. <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> but then what was so fascinating was how much that paid off later. Like, and, and I, you know, the, 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 the villain was named, the, the villain was like in disguise, his character named Dr. Z or, and then he became professor Zed. Right. Like, and it was, and it was this whole thing, but like, it was so letter based and I didn't intend to do that. That just sort of happened. But then, Progressively, as the story went on, there were these little serendipitous moments that came out of that structure that I built that's, that, that so greatly exceeded the sum of its parts and made, I mean, it's, it's one of, weirdly, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of as a writer, 
was how this how the how the humor of this world came together based on on that process and and i i kind of want to use this to to pivot because um i know that one of the questions that you have was sort of vigil related first of all i've binged most of vigil this morning it's fantastic <laughs> thank you uh, i cannot wait to get back to it the moment we're done recording here and just a couple accolades before we dive in one of the coolest superpowers i've ever heard of the, the superpower i would want vigil superpower 100 and this next one i'm definitely not going to spoil one of the scariest superpowers i've ever heard is the first villain superpower terrifying yeah, yeah. terrifying the reason yeah. the reason i kind of wanted to pivot here is because i wanted to talk about how i create characters as a writer um, because it's it's I think it's it's really important, and I think and 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 just to to quickly put a bow on the last bit, I think the thing that allows you to pivot as a character is understanding that when someone tells you something about the world or their character, that's a gift that you get to play with and you get to have an opinion on as a character and all of those things. Yeah, and it's not something to fight. And when someone tells you something about your character, that's a gift. It's not something to fight. And I think that's that's an important thing. Um, obviously, there are lines. Like, you don't want somebody else to completely define who your character is. But that's their opinion of what your character is. That's their opinion of how the world works. And your character can see it differently, right? You get to have an opinion on it either way. But when someone reveals something to you, that's a gift. And I think so often we don't see that that way. So, But pivoting into character creation. So one of the things I really like to do um, is I like to ca create character in community. It's why I loved divination as a game so much. You're creating these things together. Um, I believe very strongly in the magic of names. And so when I do have the great privilege to have my actors cast before I've finished writing or have written, I let them choose their names. I think it creates a sense of, sense of identity for the character that would otherwise be lost. And I think that it really... I don't know, it brings a sense of ownership and pride to whatever performer is taking on the role. And it tells me a lot about the character. Just how do you see them? What's the, their name, right? That, that tells us something. And so I, I like to let my actors choose their character names. And so that's a, that's a big piece of the puzzle for me. But then, so like for something like Vigil, it was actually a collaborative writing process. So I was the the primary writer. I would actually be the one that writes all the scripts and and has the the plot in my brain. But what I would do is I would I would go to my actors. I, I knew the overall plot points that I wanted to hit in each two two episode arc, and I would go to my actor and I would say, "You're casting this. What's your character's name? What's your character's superpower? If their character has a superpower, and then you know, here here are the plot points. Like, what are the things that you want to talk about? What is what is the story that you want to tell in this little like mini arc?" right? This, this 30 to 45 minute arc that we're going to get into. And that was such a wonderful process because it led me places that I didn't expect to go. I, I think about the second arc of, of Vigil, where it's like a very much growth arc for this character. And um, it became very, like the relationship between the characters became very combative in a way yeah. that like, uh, Layla and I are lovely friends in real life. Like we, we, get, we I, I, I literally had a Zoom call with her yesterday <laughs> where we spoke for hours. Like, I can't say enough good things about this human, but like the, the story that she wanted to tell was really what you get in those sec second two episodes. And that was not in my mind. That was not like, I did want to discuss some of the, the ethical implications of this character, but that, that was not where that arc was going. 
and we hit, but the great thing was like, I was able to like, these are the big beats that we need to hit and we were moving on. But like, it led us to this really, really interesting place right off the bat, right? I knew that in the second arc, we needed to have this character have a failure. That was like a big piece. I was like, we need this character to fail early and fail often. And I said, and I need this character to have to, this character has to apologize in the second arc. Like those were the two, two, two major plot points for me was I needed those two things to happen. I need them to fail. I need them to apologize. So that was going into it before you got input from the other. Actors? Yes. So like gotcha. those, those two things were things that like, and, and I had some other like big plot points that I was like, yeah. and like structural things for the story that I needed to happen. But yeah, so we would have these discussions and I would talk to them and I would take copious notes and then I would go off and I would write the scripts and then I would come back to them and we would read the scripts and they would give me feedback. I'd go off, rewrite the scripts. We'd come back to a final read through. I would make any tweaks that needed to be made. And then we'd record the episodes. Um, so it was like a two, two, two or three week process with each, with each performer. Um, and that was how we built the season was, and they all got a writing credit on the season because it wasn't just me, right? I was the, I was the compiling writer really. And like the, the sort of the lead writer that had the, you know, the forest in mind, but the trees largely came from my performers and they named their characters and they did all those things. And uh, another podcast that I have coming out uh, sometime this year called Athlos, similar process. I had, I had, um, it's, it's a sports anime podcast, essentially. And um, it's what would happen if Hayek U and Moneyball had a baby. Um, I know that's a weird pitch. <laughs> I'm into it. Anyways, but like going to all these actors and being like, here's your position. Here's your sport. What's your character name? Right. And just that told me so much about their characters. Right. And then I asked them for like some things like, what are you interested in playing? What role are you interested in playing? Like it was very D and D style. Like, you know, yeah, especially like vigil was very much that like, I would go to these, go to these actors and be like, okay, does your character have a superpower? Does your character not have a superpower? Right. What's the superpower? What's the name of the character? What things do you want to play with? I remember um, Ashley Oviedo who plays in the, um, in the final two episodes of the arc. Uh, so you, you probably haven't experienced her work yet. Not. Phenomenal. Um, but I asked her, this is not, I hope this isn't spoiling too much for you, but I asked her, I was like, what do you never get to do as an actor? Like, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you think is going to be fun? She's just like, I think I just want to be a bitch. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's do it. Right. Like there's, sure. and that's, that's <laughs> the thing is you never know what people haven't been asked to do. You never know like what that thing that they want to explore is. And it was, it was actually kind of perfect. That's what I needed in that moment. And I was not expecting her to say that, but it was very much like, yeah, let's run with it. Let's roll. Let's roll with this. This is going to be so fun. And it was such a perfect way to cap off the season was to have, you know, and, and I'm not gonna spoil anything, but like to have Ashley present me with that gift in that moment was so far away from what I was expecting. Cause you know, everybody's going to want to play the superhero, right? Everyone yeah. wants to be John Cena. Not really, <laughs> but like, right. Like kids, that's why John Cena was so popular for so long. I'm sorry. I'm going into wrestling. I know a bunch of people are like, I don't hey, understand anything about this. This is a wrestling but adjacent podcast. It's all good. One, one of the things that I will say is that I think with wrestling gimmicks in mind, when we wrote the All Arcadians, my co-writer J Joshua David Atkins and I, we wrote it. All of the main characters were based on WWE gimmicks at the time, all like, and then they changed so much, right? But you get that kernel that it's built on, right? And I think like that's what wrestling does so in such a lovely way is it simplifies everything to its like most essential truth. Who is this person? What is the one thing the audience has to understand about you? in an entrance, right? All you have is what the commentary people say about you. All you have 
is what you are physically presenting to the audience, what you are wearing, what the lights or pyro or whatever is doing, and the music. That's a lot. You have a lot of tools to work with, but you don't necessarily get words, your own words, right? Sometimes you get to yell something, whatever it is, but you have to tell the audience in that moment what you're all about. And you have like 30 seconds to walk to the ring. If you're Roman Reigns, you have four minutes, but <laughs> right. It's that's what we have to, but the thing is Roman Reigns taking four, four minutes to walk to the ring tells you something about that person, 100%. right? It's, it's the simplest, it's the simplest form of storytelling, which ultimately, because it's been going on for hundreds of years, that's an exaggeration, but because it's been going on so long, makes it ultimately one of the most complex forms of storytelling, right? Um, and there's something beautiful that games do as well about the gamification of it allows you to choose the simplest, simplest piece. And as a dramaturg, oftentimes I am creating structures for writers that get to what is the simple truth, right? I, I literally created a worksheet on what, how does the magic of this world work for a musical I was dramaturging the other day because it was, it was, a, it was a fact of there were multiple writers in the room and they all needed to be in, on the same page about what, what is the magic and how does it work? Even if it's not a magical world necessarily, we have to understand that anything supernatural, anything that could be perceived as supernatural, what is our, our collective language that, you're, that we're using to make this? And that's why I think it's really, really smart for, for you know, games that people are really excited to, to develop and, and create the world and create the relationships between the character. Like you said, like using things like the kids on bike system to explore or using things like a quiet, the world together, like before you start are really wonderful. And that's really what I did with things like Vigil and things like Athlos. And really going back, like the All Arcadians, what's funny was we started with this idea for this character, the character played by Becky Kofta, who's called Obelis, was based on Asuka at the time. And the idea was just like that she would just like sort of be like not care about anything and then just yell things unintelligibly in, an, in it was in Japanese in, in WWE, uh, it just get really animated. And we just chose like Latin or like a Latin adjacent language. Cause it was like, she was a spellcaster, right? That was the, that was the way that we, you know, worked on that gimmick yeah, and sure. it didn't work with Becky. Like it didn't like we cast her and cause, cause you know, she was giving us some of that energy. And then we re realized as we we're doing full episodes, like that was a vibe that she was just really struggling with. And we worked really, really hard on it. And, and Becky's a great actor and she worked really hard to try to get there, but it just wasn't clicking with her as a person. Right. And there's, there's, you know, right. And that was a, gift that we didn't recognize when we were writing it because where we eventually got with that character which was sort of like an april ludgate character <laughs> from parks and rec, from yeah. Parks and rec yeah. right like that's ultimately where that character sort of ended up um was so much better with the dynamic of the team and what we realized was it wasn't just that it wasn't working with becky it wasn't working with our story right it wasn't a failure on becky's part it was from a writing and directing and acting standpoint, like collectively we came together to discover, oh, this needs a different thing, right? To the point where she's so com comfortable in the part now, she was able to do a whole D&D &D podcast in it, right? <laughs> like, so, and it was, it was a great learning experience for all of us to discover when, you know, there was something in that kernel of truth that we were holding on to too long, right? And it was the, the angry part. It was the part where she gets really angry and just starts yelling things. And in a, in a, in a podcast where you had created where like everyone was so precious with each other, 
everyone except for like the villains and even some of the villains were so kind to one another so that when somebody did do something unkind it came from a place of you know it was really grounded in sort of how relationships work right nobody's actively like i hate you i'm evil right we had those characters but those characters were like really obvious sort of foils and so with the real characters came from within the real evil characters came from it i'm not going to spoil too much um it's a lovely show and we intend to bring it back someday but but that this character that just started yelling didn't feel precious it didn't feel kind and so you know we really had a lot of and becky sensed that right away in a way that we didn't so that's i don't know uh i don't remember what i was really talking about but that's an anecdote related to something that started it adhd hey adhd in the house uh times two today but no you you, you were we were discussing vigil and uh it's and that got to that and that's I, I just love the idea, like the fluidity from going from story, collaborative storytelling to something scripted and something scripted back to collaborative. You've done both, which is fantastic. And I like to build kernels in, and I, I like to give actors autonomy. I don't write a lot of stage, actually, I do write a lot of stage directions and I delete most of them. Sure. Um, <laughs> right. When there's, there's many ways to write a script, right? You read August Wilson or you read, you know, you know, uh, these, these great playwrights and, and you get, books you get book like the stage direction like it's a manor and hanging off the wall is a an old spider web and it's like what scenic designer is going to design exact like it's so specific and it's literary right and you get shakespeare who's like they enter they exit there's a trumpet like that's it that's (laughs) all you get right and there's there's merit to both pieces and everything in between right but for me as a writer, I tend towards the Shakespeare because that gives the actors more um, permission, I think, to turn it into something that you never expected it to be. Um, and I think I, I remember I wrote a character for my current roommate, uh, Jared Langwinski on the All Acadians. It was like it was meant to be this sort of like flamboyantly queer character. Like, that's how I wrote it. I didn't tell them that. That's just what I wrote. And then <laughs> And then I, I handed them the script and they went, oh, cool. And they walked away and they came back with it a few minutes later and they performed <laughs> it as a disgruntled retail employee. And it was so much better than what I was picturing. It was not what I was picturing, but it was so much better. And it was because I gave them no instruction. I just handed them the script and they put something on top of it. And uh, it was better than I could have possibly imagined. And uh, that that kind that's that's such a joyful experience as a performer. So I don't write very many stage directions, um, but I do like to give. So like that's a piece of like giving actors autonomy and giving directors autonomy. But um, the other thing, like for instance, in Micro, which is a musical uh, that's currently in the the development process with um, my co-writer Heidi Jostin and I at Music Theater of Madison as part of the Wisconsin New Work Cycle, uh, New Musical Cycle. One of the characters, the, the main character is designed to be a woman of color. And it does not specifically state what color, right? That there's no specific ethnicity design on the character, which can be pretty, pretty tricky in terms of like coming up with a name. Like we could do the colonial thing and make it like Smith and anybody could be named Smith, but that didn't feel right for this character. So um, I was trying to find a last name that existed across like all cultures that didn't feel right that, you know, whatever it is, or like last names that were like pretty close and you could just like tweak here or there, like whatever it is. Uh, and that that was not that was not working for me. I was I, I couldn't really find anything. And I found something that was like kind of close, but it wasn't quite working. And then I gave it to our, our uh, the, the person who originated the role in the reading, um, Brianna Plazier. 
and she pronounced it wrong or not wrong, but like she pronounced it the way that she felt it was pronounced. And it was not correct to the pronunciation of the name that I had chosen. And throughout the process, we stuck with her pronunciation because that was what we were just going to get for this reading. We had three days. You didn't have time. And then written into the script, other characters are supposed to mispronounce it. And those mispronunciations became very fun to the point of one of the actors made a really great joke about the mispronunciation of this name. It was, it was so good. I didn't write it. It's in the script now. He's not getting credit. But <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Blakesley, he's brilliant. Um, but we um, that I realized that I needed to keep that name in the way sort of that Brianna. So the way Brianna pronounced this actual last name. I just spelled it phonetically. And then now we had a fake last name, a last name that does not exist in the history of humanity. And so now every actor can pronounce that in the way that they would pronounce it, right? So we've created that piece of autonomy and identity at the beginning of this script, right? You create the pronunciation of this. And so anybody who mispronounces it or pronounces it correctly is based on your version of this, right? And so like, I, I think that not all theater is going to be that, but when we're talking about immersive, somewhat devised, you know, intimate theater, that there is that there's a place for creating autonomy for our characters. And I think that comes a lot from like being a GM to tie it all back together is like when you're when you're, you know, you're playing long form improv. Like that's what D&D is. That's yeah. what, you know, uh, kids on bikes and kids. Like that's, that's what those games are. And when you're doing that, you're writing as a as a game ma- a game game manager, but also you're you're adapting and you're creating a, a sandbox for people to play in. And I think as a writer of podcasts and theater and and whatever it may be that you are writing, that the difference between these performance mediums and and literature, right? Like thinking about literature in the terms of like books that are just meant to be read not meant to be performed that that's that's the piece that makes it different that it's going to it's going to change and so build the best sandbox the safest sandbox the sandbox with the most tools to have fun with and then enjoy watching people play rather than designing the sand castle that you think that they need to build i uh, i adore that and i i live by that when it comes to i mostly gm and uh I couldn't agree more. This has been this has been incredible. I really appreciate this. I, I wanted to go one level deeper. Uh, I have yeah. a prompt uh, before we go, sort of as a last thing. Uh, I know you've tied it all up with a bow. We're going to just put this, we're just play this right on top here. That's, that's the gift that you're giving me is we're ripping the, the wrapping paper <laughs> that I so neatly taped up. And you know what? Maybe the next one will be better. Maybe it'll be worse. But th- you know what? You can always edit the button in later. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, I, also, have I to... notoriously cannot write a button as a writer. That's why my podcast company is called Button Podcasts. Because notoriously Ooh. as a writer, the thing I cannot do is write outlines. <laughs> the, uh, the irony there. That's uh, I, I admire that too. Airing it all out. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tear this wrapping paper open just to stuff one more thing into the box before we wrap it up again. And uh, this is sort of sort of stripping it all away and focusing on you as a writer and somebody who just getting really back to the prompt of a person who writes and plays the same character. I have a prompt and I'm wondering what leads you 
in a world where you're writing about superheroes, what led you to focus on the guy in the chair? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So this character has existed in my mind for for quite a while. Um, and I've always been sort of fascinated by these characters, right? The I, I remember growing up and, and reading comics and, and watching TV and it was, you know, the calculator, right? Or or whomever that was, that was, you know, the one that had all the screens, the 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 the, the essentially frequently like the sidekick or the or the person you call when you're in, you know, you need the information, you need that intel. You gotta call that one person who knows everything, right? Yeah. Um and so I was always fascinated by that character. And somebody, I don't know who it is. Somebody, I think it's someone who knows me, left a, a review of Vigil that was like, <laughs> this feels like the old Steve Ditko uh, question comics. And it's wild because I'm deeply influenced by the old question Steve Ditko comic. <laughs> I don't think, I don't. I never told anybody that. So it was like, either somebody knows me super, super well or like pulled that reference. And that's wild to me. Because um, I, I love the question. I, I grew up loving the question. And... The question was a character that didn't have any superpowers. He just had a mask that made his face go away. He was like a pretty good fighter and like an okay detective. He just get his ass kicked a lot. He would fail constantly and he wouldn't even fail upwards. Like he was always <laughs> struggling. And I loved it. Like there was something really like human about that character in a world of superheroes. He's just a dude. There's a brilliant scene in... um justice league unlimited that was that came out the, the television program and it was it was this big superhero battle going on in like the basement of star labs or whatever like supergirl and Marshman, they're like having this whole big knockdown drag out and um is that racist or like drag out knockdown yeah. drag out it's yeah. a very well used phrase yeah like, very very i'm, well I'm interrogating it in this moment anyways they're having this big fight and um <laughs> It keeps cutting in and out of of um, the question, sort of like wandering around, in, like investigating a lock, and he's like whistling the whole time, like very casual. And he like it looks like he's gonna like figure out the code on the lock using his like detective skills or whatever. And and so it's like, oh yeah, he's the detective in the scene, right? Like he's not gonna be a part of the fight, but he's gonna be use use his really like his wits and and out, out like he's gonna do the Batman thing and like put the hack code on whatever it is, right? We know this trope. And instead, he walks into frame holding a potted plant and throws it through the window and lets himself in because he knows that if the alarm goes off, it doesn't matter because there's a superhero battle happening in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it was such a great encapsulation of who this character is. And that, that scene will stick with me for life. And so I've always had a great affinity to these characters And also at the time I was watching Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And let me tell you something about Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. I hate it. I've watched every episode. I think it's garbage. I think it's a terrible show. You've persevered through like, what is it? Four seasons? Just to hate watch it? Five. (laughs) I watched it because I have a lot of friends who love it and I want to get their references. But it's bad. It's bad. (laughs) I, every line is yelled. I don't appreciate that. I don't, I truly don't. Um, and there's so, but the thing is, the format of the show is fascinating. It's fascinating. You get a superpower that's presented to you that is sort of mundane or very specific. And you get someone that instead of trying to accumulate more power, figured out how to make their power unbeatable 
in certain circumstances. And then the characters that are trapped in those circumstances have to figure out how they can get their power to overcome that power, not by gaining more power, but by figuring out the leverage that their power has in that situation. Such a clever, such a clever storytelling structure executed horribly. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I I know a lot of people love Jojo. Good for you. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's wonderful. It is not for me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to crap all over this. It it is, is a very popular piece of media. I'm sure that it will live on forever as one of the all-time greats. It is not for me. Um, So I really wanted to to do that better. And um, Hey, there you go. That's it. (laughs) And so like all, all of these pieces sort of came together and yeah, I, I decided I, I was always fascinated by the, the character in the chair. And also, I, I had always known that this superpower, I'll just spoil it. Um, it's a character that doesn't sleep. It's and I've always been fascinated by the idea, like, if you had eight more hours in a day, what would you do with them? What, what could you accomplish? And I, I was thinking, like, if you take that over a lifetime, what would you have been able to do? And such a mundane power but how can we apply it and so i always known that this character this vigil character and i came up with the name like years and years ago that this character was going to be the the character in the chair the character behind the screens like that that's sort of the the logistical support yeah and also when it comes to writing a podcast that character is way easier to write because you don't have to do the big explosions you don't have to do right. You don't. All you have to do is have a field recorder <laughs> and a phone, and right. And there are a bunch of like wild sound effects that we, I had to figure out how to make rapid plant growth as sound yeah. effects, right? Like I had so to figure out which, by the way, is rubber bands. Um, it's the, it's ooh, rubber the bands. Foley. Oh, we could do a whole hour on yeah, the foley. That's it was great. it was leaves being dragged and it was rubber bands being stretched. But um, but the uh. Right, that, that, that this is that like, I still had to design a whole bunch, but it was like, if I'm designing Superman, if I'm designing Batman, if I'm designing the Flash, if I'm designing these action oriented characters, that sound design is completely different. And it's been done before to death, right? Marvel exists, DC exists. What am I going to bring to this world that they don't? Yeah. We sure. don't see those, like there's no Alfred movie. Right. There's no they tried a TV show, but again, it's not in the spotlight. It's not, it's not. Yeah. And I I thought that the most fascinating thing in the style of the show, which is sort of this, you know, journalistic, you know, found footage style, I was like, it, it would only make sense if it was the character behind the screen. And so, like all of those pieces sort of came together at the right time in my life for me to say, yeah, this is the story. That's happening, which is interesting because when I design, I have a whole universe of superheroes that live in my brain uh, and I've written some of it down. But when I wrote it initially, Vigil was not the main character. Uh, there was a character that you're going to meet at some point that was one of the two main characters and another character who I have not figured out how to make work as from like a from like a universe perspective. Um, those two were the main characters. Vigil was like a team member right like overseen like that kind of thing and it has really changed and shaped this universe in a way that like vigil became the main character and all of a sudden 
it's really changed the way that the universe works and really changed the way like the world and all that stuff. So like it was, it was very much an, uh, an exercise in me taking the kernel and the gimmick of something that had existed in something previous and then building it, building something around it and, and not putting a box on it. Like there was one of the things that I think I accidentally did that was so helpful was I just sort of pretended that, like I just sort of plucked Vigil out of that other universe and just wrote a story about him. And now I'm like bringing the other universe up to date with that new information versus trying to be like, I'm going to write this story in this other universe. I don't think that would have ever worked. Um, You're bridging the gap there. It seems like. Yeah. And there's pieces of it, but like also now, like I said, like I don't have a way to make one of those characters work and that's okay. Like, that interestingly enough, that character was the foil for me in that other in that old story in that old universe. Wow. And like the the only reason I play Vigil, the only reason I play Vigil is because it was cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so like it wasn't necessarily a character that I designed to be me. Um, I mean, my insomnia very much inspired the character and you know how he interacts with people. And and also I had a character voice in mind when I started it, and then very quickly realized that I should just do it in my voice. Yeah. Yeah. You're really, yes. I was, I was like, this is, yep. This is just Adam speaking voice. It's just, it's just, and that's, that's all the characters. Um, All the actors just sort of like what that was the prompt was, it was like, these characters are just humans. And like, we can do the, like everyone in that show can do the animation trick where you make yourself sound like somebody else. We can all do it. Totally. Um, But it just felt, it felt really right for the style of thing that we're doing, which is that sort of like journalistic hyper-realism. The only person who does any sort of character voice is Haley Sanfilippo, who plays um, Maria. Oh, sort of like and, the overarching host sort of? Yeah, and and she, it's not really a character voice, but she does, she is really brilliant. I basically, I gave her the prompt. I was like, sound like a podcast host, right? Yeah, and she's turning it up a little bit. Yeah. So good at it. Like she, she came in and like exceeded my expectations for that of like, she just did her research and she knew like, this is the cadence. This is the, this is the, like the tone, like this is everything. And she was so good at that. Um, and so that, that like, that that's like a little bit of an affectation, but like everything else is just our voices. Um, and then there's a character that I pitch and, and like, edited and you may not have gotten to this character yet but there's a character where i did a lot of like audio editing but it is and and that actor did a little bit of like affectation to, to his voice i think but, i know who you're talking about yeah I, yeah I won't ruin it because it's an important plot point but it's, yeah it's what it's people people listen to vigil it's fascinating <laughs> that's what i'll say yeah i uh i would appreciate it if you listen to vigil we've had we've had a remarkable first year um, we, we were picked up by the Fable and Folly network, which we love Fable and Folly. I don't know if I'm allowed to plug other podcast networks. You're on your podcast, pl- but- hey, guess what? This is a Keen Dreams production podcast, which is my production company that doesn't exist yet. So plug away. Yeah. So like, there's so many great, uh, it's such a great resource for audio fiction, which is a place that like, uh, it's, it's, it's like the source for independent uh, audio fiction it's it's got so many great shows so many of the top shows out there um like it was so it was so cool to like digitally meet like my heroes in the, the audio fiction world and then yeah it, it's and, and it also has a bunch of really cool actual play podcasts like the broadswords was on fable and folly 
I think they might still be like, you know, that there's, there's this, this really lovely um, community of, of storytelling podcasters, right? It's, it's, that's, that's the focus of Fable and Folly. Um, you, you don't find the interview format shows there. And that's, you know, there's plenty of networks for those things. But like when it comes to, to comes to storytelling, when it comes to the actualization of what we're talking about today, um, Fable and Folly is a really wonderful place. And they really, really helped Vigil reach a reach a really lovely audience. Um, but we are always looking to expand our audience because um, we, we're, we're very proud of the show. And like when I released it, I like didn't care. You know what I mean? Like I said, yeah. this is the show. We made it during the pandemic or the the, the quarantine of the pandemic. This is the show. We made it. We built it. It was an excuse to make something with my friends. It was an excuse to make something with an all BIPOC cast and creative team that was good. Um, we submitted to some festivals. We submitted it to Fable and Folly, and I just started releasing it. And I was like, if we get an audience, great. If we don't, fine. Right? We did yeah. it. It's finished. I'm proud of it. Like as an artist and as artists, we felt good about it, and we just released it into the world. And that's, of course, when the success started happening, we were selected for um, the Minnesota Web Fest um, and nominated for Best Podcast. We were nominated for Best of Milwaukee Podcasts. We were, you know, we started to get some accolades that way. And then Fable and Folly picked us up and we ended up making it on some big podcast lists. And, you know, we're we're just a couple of weeks out. We're a, we're a little under a month away from our one year since our first episode launched. And we are... Uh, if we're not there already, we will easily by the end of this month uh, have hit 50,000 downloads in our first year. Incredible. That's yeah. incredible. So, um, and it's, there's been a ton of people that helped us get to that point, but um, so it's been, it's been a very successful first year and this here's my pitch to listen to the show. If you haven't already, um, <laughs> it comes in. Uh, we are, we are, this is, uh, has not been talked about much, but we are about to start um, in the fall. I don't know when this comes out, but um, fall of 2023, if that has already happened, then we've already started. Uh, but um, we're getting ready to start um, crowdfunding for season two. Um, and also Athlos will be coming out soon, which is our other show that is, again, weird sports anime premise, audio fiction uh execution with an incredibly diverse and wonderful cast of mostly Midwest performers. And I'm also really proud of that show. Um, it's got a very different vibe, but I also am the coordinating writer again. So it'll, it'll feel somewhat similar. I personally am very excited uh, to finish Vigil, but I'm also excited to hear Athos. I have plenty of friends who are part of it and you'll, Hey, you'll hear yours truly uh, doing, I think what exactly one line. And I think like just a yeah. little ad for it in but, the trailer. Uh, yeah. You're in, yeah, the trailer. in the trailer. And yeah. then, the trailer. and then, um, yeah, I, we should talk cause I have more play by play lines coming up. There you go. Hey, let's, let's talk once we're done here for sure. Uh, Adam, this has been, this has been amazing. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you just coming on and sort of inadvertently taking everything we've been talking about for the last eight or nine episodes on the pod and just kind of releasing the floodgates. So now there's just, there's so many jumping off points that we've established uh, just you kind of talking about these things. And I cannot wait to do so with you and with others, yeah. uh, many others. So uh, thank I, you so much. I'm excited to listen. I haven't listened to the previous eight or nine episodes. So this is an accident and. Oh, this is uh, a happy quick fast accident yeah yeah and i'm i'm excited to to like hear those conversations and and feel validated and just like <laughs> oh i'm so smart you know right. as as all creatives like to do. 
We just need, we need to tell a good story. We need to feel a little bit validated at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, we need folks. someone to, I'm not saying I need personal individualized compliments every five seconds on the second, but- uh, I wouldn't I say do. no to it. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, no, I- I whistle for that. Yeah, I, no, I think, I think that like, here's my, here's my attempt at a button. Um, Please. Like, I think, I think as creative- not just writers, not just performers, like any anyone who creates. And I, I, I hate the gatekeeping mechanisms. Like some of my best role-playing people have not been like artists with a capital A, right? That that's not their job. You know, they're all artists, right? They're all creatives. But like the thing, the thing that we need to that 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 makes this whole engine run is when we create freely and then adapt to the constraints of the world and that the constraints of the world that's such a um such a loose term but like that can be the game managers world that can be the world of your society with your other players that can be the actual world that we live in that can be the world inside your mind but as you are both receptive and intentional to what's going on. You're intentional in saying, this is what I'm setting out to do. This is the kernel that I'm holding onto that makes this meaningful to me, that I am proud of, that I'm excited to explore, whatever that is, hold on to that intention, but then also at an equal level, find that level of reception. That's when the best stories get told. There you have it, folks. I'm gonna leave that episode on that. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Until next time, I appreciate it. Holy smokes. Thanks for listening, folks. And I want to thank Adam one more time for starting out season two of Character Build with a bang. Make sure you check out Adam's podcast, Vigil, anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. You can also check out An American Mythology, an album with music and lyrics by multiple composers from Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, co-directed by Adam and Nathan Fossbinder, available on Music Theater of Madison's website, mtmadison.com. While you're there, be also sure to check out Finding Me, a children's book best enjoyed by kids age six through nine, written by Alexis Dean Jr., illustrated by Anna Gonzalez, and music and lyrics by Adam Kataishat. Character Build is produced and edited by Kyle David Perry. Show art created by Gabriella Ashland. Show theme composed by Kyle David Perry with additional music composed by Adam Kataishat. Thank you everyone for listening. I can't wait to share the rest of this wonderful season with you.